<laughs> All right. Without further ado, I'm going to uh, give the word to Christian. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Uh, it's also a very private visit, because last uh, week, uh, my uh, son was admitted to McGill. <laughs> so he's very, uh, it's a BA, uh, just uh, kind of the college, right? Uh, so uh, I'm also a little bit of a scout here to uh, report back home how things are here. And uh, so as the chances are he will really uh, want to come here, then I may be a more regular visitor. <laughs> Surely Montreal will be very much on the family map. Um, having said that, um, when I looked into your advertising of this talk, there was a nice poster on the internet and it showed barbed wire. Goodness, I thought, uh, barbed wire. Well, the title has this balance or this vagueness between fortifying and uh, lightening citizenship. So obviously the fortifying has catched the attention more than the lightening uh, uh, part of it. And indeed, how could it be otherwise after these uh, shocking events in 2016? Um, uh, what do they signal? They signal the breakthrough of populism in the West. Perhaps the end of liberal internationalism. Uh, and perhaps historians of the future will refer to what is being closed down now as the second globalization. So in, in Britain, the Home Office recently sent out notices to some of its uh, Euro academics, and there are some 31,000 in the country, um, telling them, be prepared to leave. Um, and of course, we know that previously they resided there sheerly by way of European Union citizenship, and they didn't even bother to ask for this um, uh, permanent residence title, which was not necessary under European law. And in the US, the Muslim ban that prevents now citizens from seven Muslim countries to enter the US, this is perhaps the most blatant um, national origin discrimination since this Chinese Exclusion Act more than 100 years ago. So if the populist wave holds on, perhaps we will reach or we could reach a moment where free mobility, be it just for leisure, be it for putting up, uh, taking up work somewhere, becomes a thing of the past, even for the elites like myself who have been used to it uh, so far. Now, in these mentioned events um, or episodes, citizenship appears. Um, um, and it appears in its oldest and perhaps most uh, fundamental function, which is a kind of sorting mechanism to distribute people to states. And states using uh, citizenship as um, an instrument of closure at the border to very fastly determine who is in, who is out. And I think, therefore, the barbed wire on the poster that advertised this uh, talk. However, <clears throat> this does not yet uh, tell us um, much, if anything, about the state of citizenship itself first how easy or difficult it is to get citizenship, to access it. That is the object of closure function of citizenship, apart from the instrument uh, of closure uh, function. And of course, I'm borrowing these terms from Rogers Brubaker. We do not yet know from this barbed wire metaphor uh, what uh, rights uh, currently are attached to a citizenship, and finally, what sorts of identities um, its holders are normatively expected uh, to hold or actually do hold. So, and what I'm going to talk about in the last, in the uh, next few minutes, is about this uh, um, picture: the state of citizenship. Uh, 
Um, and that leads me, at least for a moment, away from the barbed wire, because I think the barbed wire is the wrong metaphor for an overall assessment of the state of citizenship in the West, at least as we are talking. Because in a small book uh, that I uh, published about seven years ago, I described the state of citizenship in the West as one of lightning. Therefore, the lightning in the title for me was the most important part, less the fortifying uh, part. And uh, citizenship light, I called that thing. And it uh, consists of, um, first, citizenship generally is relatively easy to access in the West, easier than in the past. By way of certain measures that particularly uh, Western European states uh, um, uh, instituted in the past few decades, fastened naturalization, and that the whole process of naturalization is now um, contained uh, by the rule of law and is now no longer just discretionary. We have uh, the introduction of uh, conditional use solely provisions in practically all uh, Western European states and a general toleration of dual citizenship. That is the lightening of citizenship on the status uh, dimension of citizenship. On the rights dimension, what is the lightening here? Um, it means less um, in terms of rights that are exclusively attached to the status of citizenship and parallel to this uh, strengthening of um, um, legal permanent resident rights. That is the most important lightening um, um, aspect um, on the rights dimension. And finally, the identity dimension. And now you already see that, for me, citizenship has these three fundamental dimensions, status, rights, and identity. And I'm kind of checklisting what is most importantly uh, in terms of recent developments on each of the three. With respect to identity, my argument was that citizenship is incredibly if, if there are any identities uh, that states kind of normatively impute on citizens, it's ever thin and thinner, uh, kind of copycat constitutional patriotism everywhere, um, uh, commitment to liberal democratic values. That is essentially what states ask of newcomers at various stages of the integration process, but also at the citizenship states, uh, the citizenship state. So I should actually. Uh, move to the uh, slides. I'm not really familiar with the slides. I did them just two days ago. So uh, <laughs> that is what I uh, had so far. And now in a uh, first step, really, I will bring a little bit of what happened since, uh, both in terms of developments in the real world, since I published that book in 2010, we are already writing the year 2017, so a lot of uh, uh, time has passed. And also, where has the academic discussion moved since? And what would I do differently um, uh, if I had the chance for a second edition, which, of course, I will not get? Uh, <laughs> so uh, spikes in the uh, picture, looking back at my uh, picture um, uh, of seven years ago, um, it may appear that this lightening uh, diagnosis uh, is a little bit of triumphant liberalism. And is this now a, a, a thing of a bygone era? So um, I, again, uh, go through these three dimensions of citizenship that, um, that is my, my grid here. With respect to access to the status of citizenship, I think what I had completely ignored when I wrote that little book was there's only one dimension uh, of kind of status acquisition. You may also lose it. Actually, what is on the loss of uh, citizenship side? And here, a very important recent development has been uh, that a lot of states, including Canada, have campaigned for um, um, uh, depriving uh, convicted terrorists of, uh, of, of the citizenship. Um, Canada had a law which was then uh, taken back uh, recently under your new liberal government. France very seriously entertained the idea 
uh, in early 2016. And most successful uh, in that campaign was the UK, actually, which have the most uh, rabid uh, system of citizenship stripping of uh, all Western countries in the world today. And there has been an interesting academic debate. Do we see a return of banishment? Now, I reflected on that. And my spiel on this is the following. These campaigns for citizenship stripping, they pose a dilemma, which is, if citizenship means anything in terms of a minimal loyalty towards fellow citizens, then, of course, it should be possible to excommunicate to kind of get rid of those who have undercut this loyalty by the random killing of fellow citizens. Because I think the religious terror that we see um, in, uh, these days is very different from the kind of Red Army uh, <laughs> communist uh, ideology-driven uh, uh, terror in that it no longer just targets uh, um, elite representatives of the Schweine system, but basically <laughs> random citizens are the uh, enemy. So I fully support um, and I understand the, uh, the emotion of Francois, Mit uh, not Mitterrand, Francois Hollande, when he wanted to pass such a law and it didn't work. He said, look, it's, it's so disgusting that these guys kill fellow French people just for the sake of being French or uh, unbelievers. And if we cannot get rid of them, then our whole idea of uh, French citizenship is totally meaningless. But that is only one half of the uh, dilemma. The, the, the other half is, uh, in principle, this is uh, what is right in principle, as I argue in a paper which I wrote on the tab on the topic, what is right in principle is not necessarily practicable. Because under international law, only dual citizens can be affected by any citizenship stripping measure. But this naturally divides uh, the population, the citizenry, into two uh, unequal halves, namely one half uh, of mono-citizens that are protected and cannot be uh, exorcised out of the national citizenry and uh, less privileged dual citizens, uh, uh, most of them actually with the migration uh, background, North Africa in the case of France and also Turkey. And exactly this um, consideration that the effect of such a banishment measure would be to divide the citizenry into two unequal halves with that uh, swelling resentment among the less privileged that this is yet another affront to the five million Muslims in country. Therefore, the French government in the end abstained from it. And why also probably in Canada under Justine, uh, Justin Trudeau that uh, old law has been uh, revoked. Now, how should we interpret this uh, citizenship uh, stripping uh, um, campaign? Um, on the one side, there is an element of citizenship light in it. Easy to get easy to lose. Both sides, in a way, are complementary. And both sides convene in that the acquisition and the loss is triggered by acts of the individual, be they positive or negative. But that's a little bit sophistic. That's the view I defended in an article on the topic, but one also has to see the other side, because citizenship stripping is, of course, part of the counter campaign of the state to make citizenship heavier, to make it mean more, in particular, to uh, recharge the depleted, uh, secularized uh, loyalty component of uh, citizenship. In the end, if most states abstain from citizenship uh, stripping, for prudential reasons, then this shows the futility or impossibility of state campaigns to revalue or to upgrade citizenship, which in the end, all this renationalization uh, talk and uh, attempts by state, I consider to a degree just smoke and mirrors. So that is my comment on recent uh, developments on the status dimension, only picking this 
um, reverse side of the status dimension, namely the loss of citizenship. If I could rewrite that book for a second edition, I would m give much more emphasis on the loss of citizenship. You get an entirely different picture on citizenship. And most scholars always focus on the access to citizenship side and not so much the loss of citizenship uh, side. Okay, with respect to the rights dimension, uh, here, the usual lens in rights analysis is to take existing citizen rights as a benchmark and then to see uh, how much immigrant or non-citizen rights have come to approximate the citizen standard. And what is then usually obser observed is a leveling up of immigrant rights to approximate citizen rights. The classic work on that, or from that uh, angle, is uh, Yasemin Soisal's Limits of uh, Citizenship. I dealt with that matter in my 2010 book, uh, Citizenship and Immigration, it's called. And I criticized Soisal there mainly for her failing to see or to take serious important dimensions or areas where this leveling up of immigrant rights to approximate uh, the rights that citizenship have, where this was not happening. I put my finger into these sour spots of the leveling up where immigrant rights have actually not uh, quite uh, acquired the nimbus and the aura and the, and the full uh, uh, rights panoply as, 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 as citizens uh, have. Um, most importantly, what uh, immigrants never quite acquired, maybe civil rights, if you use the Marshallian uh, triptych, maybe social rights, but never political rights. And that turned out to be very important because to this angle, it was then possible that uh, residence rights and social rights of immigrants came to be restricted. Uh, and examples are obvious, uh, the uh, attack on welfare rights of immigrants in Clintonian America, and what I more look at in my 2010 book, um, increased expulsion powers uh, of the state in the age of Islamist terror. And <laughs> what we know since these uh, tightened uh, terrorism laws that citizens can never be expelled. Only immigrants, however long settled in the country, are in principle expellable. Um, and so I put my finger in a way, I, I use the same standard. Leveling up is the basic picture. Immigrants get ever more and citizens is, is kind of the benchmark they have pretty much, and uh, immigrants get ever more. And uh, that is perhaps an obsolete picture today, because what we can observe is an opposite trend of leveling down, not leveling up. So what we can observe is that in important domains, uh, citizen rights uh, become restricted equally to uh, already um, not very far developed uh, uh, immigrant or uh, non-citizen rights. What are examples for this? On the one hand, further reductions and uh, conditionalities for receiving welfare benefits, where the UK has been very entrepreneurial in recent years, like introducing a, what they call a household benefit cap that puts an absolute limit on the total amount of benefits that a household can receive, regardless of the size of that household or regardless of its citizenship status. Uh, one must suspect here in this being ever meaner with respect to already thinning social rights for citizens and for non-citizens at the same time, one must suspect here, here of course this is something to really uh, investigate uh, closer, I've never seen analysis actually which would have done here, one must suspect that um, to the degree that certain social benefits 
come to be disproportionately used by people with a migratory background, then these benefits, these type of benefits, like the mentioned household benefit cap, become vulnerable to uh, attack. Um, whether uh, one then attacks a citizen right or a non-citizen right becomes totally irrelevant already because many of these social rights are indifferent with respect to citizenship status now as before. So the logic is diminished citizen rights because of a hidden ethnic or racial animus. This is speculation with respect to the welfare uh, uh, social rights restrictions. It is very visible and has been established in scholarship, however, this logic, in the area of family reunification or family formation rights. France and Germany, concretely, um, once had kind of stratified um, family rights very highly developed for citizens, but rather meekish for legal residents. And to the degree that family migration is now increasingly sponsored by citizens with a migratory background, both countries, both France and Germany, have restricted, uh, uh, limited the family rights of citizens um, particularly in the form of uh, income thresholds that are now required equally for legal permanent residents and for citizens if they want to uh, get together with their spouse whom they married from a non-European uh, country. So here what we can observe very clearly is the leveling down of the rights of uh, uh, citizens uh, to uh, the um, uh, rights of uh, resident uh, non-citizens. Overall, the analysis of citizen and legal resident rights increasingly requires a common frame of reference but not because of upgraded immigrant, but because of downgraded citizen rights. This is most certainly a further lightening of citizenship, but one that from the start had been in the harsh colors of the, call it, neoliberal disciplining of self-providing individuals. This darker side of citizenship light needs much more attention now than I had given it uh, to my, uh, when I wrote that little book in 2010. And if you want a flavor for this harsher side, uh, watch uh, uh, a film uh, by uh, Ken Loach, uh, I, Daniel Blake. This gives you the full picture of diminished citizen rights here. Uh, that is, of course, with, not with respect to family unification, but with respect to the first dimension where this happens, uh, diminished social rights. So if I had the chance to uh, do the second edition of the book, I would look at the opposite process of not leveling uh, up where immigrant rights come to approximate citizen rights, but where citizen rights get kind of diminished. And then there is no longer a distinction to be drawn between uh, immigrant and citizen rights uh, because both have very little. Um, now, with respect to the identity dimensions, spikes, uh, what are spikes in the picture here seven years later? Well. I started with it. Isn't it ridiculous in the age of Brexit, in the age of America first? Isn't it ridiculous to say that citizenship uh, identities are becoming more universalistic, uh, more exchangeable? Uh, <laughs> well, for this, it first needs to be clarified what exactly I tried to say. I had never meant uh, to say that the empirical identities that ordinary citizens hold are more universalistic than before, more liberal democratic copycats everywhere. 
no, I had really only made arguments about the normative identities projected by states and what they expect of citizens, particularly of new citizens, then as a condition for uh, uh, rewarding citizenship uh, to them. So what I had looked at uh, is uh, citizenship tests uh, which are now standard practice, no longer just in North America, but also in uh, Western Europe. And what was my argument then? It was liberal states are caught in a paradox of universalism. What is that? States in their integration campaigns and European countries became totally obsessed with it in the last 15 years or so. States seek to socialize newcomers into this particular and not any other society, say Britain. But states do not have the tools to enforce this particularism because simply this smacks of discrimination. Accordingly, the official definition of Britishness, which new citizens are expected to uh, adapt for themselves, is ethnically neutral. I quote from a document here, this uh, Crick Commission uh, document, um, respect for the laws respect for democratic structures, tolerance, equal rights, allegiance to the state, not even the crown is mentioned there. Now, any liberal state definition looks exactly like this, Dutch, Danish, German, you name it. One should be aware that liberal identity, as I described it happening there in these state documents, Liberal identity is not without exclusive possibilities. On the contrary, all European restrictions on Islam, most notably, notably Fular restrictions, Burka, Burkini restrictions, which of course you particularly find in the land of human rights, which is France, these restrictions are motivated by enforcing liberal values or the French version of it, which they call republicanism. So equality of the sexes in this particular case. And France, indeed, it was fully described in my 2010 book, um, had tightened its cultural assimilation requirement, uh, which you always had in the French civil code, in the French nationality law, Previously, what was meant by uh, assimilation has to be uh, uh, present if somebody wants to acquire the French citizenship. Previously, it just meant very basic French language uh, competence. And recently, in the age of these debates about uh, Muslims not uh, adapting adequately, um, that was now upgraded into uh, one has to adopt republican values, um, and if that is not uh, demonstrable, then the person must not be given French uh, citizenship. Now, these developments were fully visible um, in the early millennium, but I should say this development has <laughs> taken off to a degree, particularly in Europe. And it lead, needs more underscoring now than perhaps then, this repressive possibilities of liberalism, not to be inclusive and nice, but to have a hard edge that people who are not fitting the bill simply should stay where they come from. The liberal state for the liberal people. Roger Waldinger used that uh, word once, and I've never forgotten it. It was in my presence when I actually uh, presented parts of this uh, Selecting by Origin book uh, almost 20 years ago right now. Um, now, one has to concede at the same time that Brexit and Trumpism, this is not repressive liberalism, this is something else. Uh, what this means is the resurgence of plain old nationalism. Um, but it is a long way from this new plain old nationalism to leaving an imprint on nationality law 
Um, we don't know it yet. The jury is out. If Trump has the chance to rewrite citizenship law in the United States, will it still be this sort of liberal citizenship tests? Uh, we don't know yet. Um, and we also don't know what in a post-EU situation will happen in this respect in Britain, even though I'm more optimistic and that will be my concluding uh, remark. I'm not yet there, however. I still have a few minutes' time. Yeah? So we don't know yet um, where in the age of rampant populism um, uh, this identity component of citizenship as inscribed in the law how that and whether this inscription will happen. What we do know, however, is that in Europe, to the degree that the European Union does still exist, the EU itself, with its citizenship uh, construct, there is a European Union citizenship, as you know, since the Treaty of Maastricht, this is a very important counterforce to the attempted, perhaps, renationalizations and barbed wire sort of developments that may happen at member state uh, level. So European Union law, I already described it in 2010 in that book, is uh, itself actually an exemplar of uh, citizenship uh, light. And it is at the same time also um, um, contributing to strengthening the lightening trend at member state uh, level. And the most important uh, legal source for that is, first, why is European citizenship citizenship light? Simply because it's purely a citizenship of free mobility. There's no duty anywhere in the European Union treaty uh, to be found, uh, no duty of citizenship which is also interesting. In, in common sense, one always talks about the rights and duties of citizens. But actually, what are the duties? Uh, if you think about it, very little and ever little, even at the level of, uh, of nation states. But at the European level, it's even more extreme that this is only a Roman citizenship of uh, uh, enforcing the powers of the individual to move uh, around uh, freely. And there is, at the level of identity uh, at Europe, uh, there's uh, some discourse of what it is. Christian, everybody says no. At least the official institutions of the EU say we are not Christian. The Copenhagen criteria that determine who is, can be a new member state are purely politically uh, and uh, procedural criteria. No ethnic, no cultural, no religious uh, element uh, there. So it is a, a citizenship light in itself, but that's the less interesting part for my purposes here. It is also uh, lightening the forces of, uh, um, it's strengthening the lightening forces at the member state level, most importantly th through Article 18 in the recent uh, treaty version, which outlaws nationality discrimination. Um, <laughs> that means if European states try to say, our citizenship has to be more exclusive, has to be more meaningful, say certain social benefits should be now exclusively um, uh, tied to the status of citizen and uh, permanent residents must be excluded, doesn't work because all other European uh, citizens have to be included. Uh, so you cannot make citizenship rights exclusive uh, and exclude um, uh, uh, residents from it because that is discrimination uh, on the basis of nationality um, according to the European treaties. You see, there is a transnational, internationalist dimension built into being a member of the European Union that uh, prevents uh, uh, member states from going fully nationalist with their uh, citizenship uh, uh, policies. In a way, if there is an utopia at the European level, um, there's a nice quote from a lawyer from whom I learned a lot in that respect. His name is Gareth uh, Davis. He says at one point, um, the new Belgians are uh, those who choose Belgium. Residence is the new uh, nationality. Um, well, the point here is to say EU and membership uh, or 
EU and member state citizenships are at cross purposes. The purpose of particularly these new civic integration requirements that a lot of member states uh, are dwelling in, locking in people, adjust them to us, to our society, and not to any other society. But the opposite logic of European citizenship is to unlock people, to let them move freely and unconstrained across uh, member state borders, and so to escape the confines of uh, the national. Um, now, it has to be said, and that's a real spike here in that picture, I'm still enthusiastic about EU citizenship because it's really a barrier for uh, member states of the European Union. They cannot go all the way down towards nationalism in their citizenship policies. It's totally excluded by the treaties. Period. Okay, but there is a spike in the picture, and that is <laughs> Brexit has showed it, because Brexit is likely to reverse the trend to a degree, and this is already felt in in a recently more restrictive uh, jurisdiction by the European Court of Justice that watches over the European uh, Union uh, Treaty. And there's a new trend here in this recent jurisdiction of the ECJ to exclude free movers from access to social benefits in the first years of their new residence. And that clearly diminishes greatly the denationalizing potential of EU citizenship. So the utopia, magnificently drawn in a piece by Gareth Davis, from which I learned here, the utopia of a purely residential citizenship in Europe that is totally decoupled from nationality. Belgians are those who decide to live in Belgium, is not likely to be. So mobility in Europe, because of this more recent Brexit, post-Brexit, uh, restrictive uh, jurisdiction by the European Court of Justice. They simply listen to the tune, what's going on in member states, and they say, yeah, perhaps we shouldn't be as daring now moving forward in uh, putting life into the European project because nobody believes in it uh, anymore. So now in Europe, mobility becomes increasingly limited to self-providing individuals. And one observer even speaks of class as the new guiding principle of free movement rights in Europe. Civis capitalist sum. I leave that here <laughs> as what it is. And I'm going towards closing down here with two, there are two important books that appeared, I will not call my own book important, obviously, but there are two important books that, that made me think um, and rethink uh, old uh, and dearly held assumptions. And one of these books is by Sarah Goodman. She published a book, it's called uh, Immigration and the Politics of Membership in Europe. Um, and in this book, you find an interesting critique of the citizenship light hypothesis. And you're always flattered, of course, if you are mentioned somewhere, whether people agree or don't agree is really secondary for that matter. Um, and she argues that what we observe is not a lightening, but the fortification of citizenship. So the barbed wire from, her, uh, from, from your poster would be fully in line with that, at least with the metaphor uh, she, she uses uh, to describe uh, the European scene. What are her empirical materials she's building this case on, that citizenship is becoming fortified? Her material are obligatory civic integration um, uh, policy or kind of requirements uh, that indeed are now applied. I have not gone into perhaps the requisite detail of these policies. These policies happen at various stages in the uh, integration process. Starts already at pre-entry, uh, so-called integration from abroad, 
Then at the residence level is a new test moment when if you want a legal permanent residence title, then you need to demonstrate you speak the language proficiently enough and you know also something about the history and the civics of this particular country. And then the whole process in most countries actually with an accelerated increased intensity and level of difficulty, it repeats itself at the citizenship acquisition level. So, If you don't pass any of these tests, you are simply out. That is the material she's working with. And her main point is to show a lot of cross-national variation with respect to these policies in Europe, which all go under the same uh, label of civic integration. So she says, these policies are mainly restrictive in their purpose in traditionally ethnic conservative countries like Austria, Germany, Denmark. And these civic integration policies are mainly liberal in traditionally liberal civic political nation states like Britain or France. Hence, the metaphor of fortifying uh, traditional approaches to integration or non-integration. That is really technically the meaning of fortification. Traditional approaches to citizenship are simply prolonged and ratified by these new civic integration policies. Now, I have my bit of nitpicking with this analysis, which I will leave for other uh, occasions. Let me say only this. The fortifying metaphor is um, in attention in her analysis with a much more interesting notion which she introduces, the notion of a new post-national state identity that she sees transpiring despite the national variations in all of these policies. She says what states do today is no longer classic nation building. If it is nation building, it is nation building in the weakest possible sense of the word, she says. She says the new state uh, identity that is forged in these civic integration policies, it um, kind of listens to the tune of no longer sameness as in the old nationalism nation building project, but togetherness. The logic of state identity is in a way a logic of togetherness where people of different backgrounds somehow have to find uh, an agreement. It's not to streamline people with uniforms and uh, being culturally uh, similar. Uh, so um, in, in my view, I'm complete agreement with this uh, analysis of <laughs> liberal state identities transpiring in these policies and it conflicts in a way uh, she builds up a wrong straw man uh, it's not lightening versus fortifying because the fortifying uh, is not barbed wire in her in her analysis it's really more that national divergences are being um, prolonged into the present time i've absolutely no problem with it but the more important thing is what is happening in terms of the contents of these civic integration requirements, and they still very much follow this universalistic uh, uh, line uh, which, uh, which I had mapped out in my 2010 book. Okay, now, a second interesting book is this one by an Israeli colleague, Liav Ogad, the name. It's called The Cultural Defense of Nations. His material are the same materials as mine and as Sarah's, as Sarah Goodman's, these new citizenship tests, civic integration requirements. And he argues they signal a cultural defense of nations. In particular, what he sees in Europe is largely illiberal ethno-cultural defense going on. And he argues, he also has a chapter on America. In America, the cultural defense is not ethno-cultural, he calls it civic 
political. He does not make any argument about Canada, but it's obvious that Canada would be even more civic political than uh, the United States. Um, to this I respond that the ethno element in this ethno-cultural defense allegedly happening in Europe is not easy to spot if it is there at all. And he uses the self-same examples. The French communauté, the German light culture, the British Britishness, the Dutch norms and values. These are his four main cases. And uh, he doesn't use any different materials than I do. He even has the same interpretation to a degree that, indeed, the content of the French communauté, the content of light culture, the content of Britishness, the content of uh, Dutch norms and values is fairly the copycat type of uh, liberal democratic uh, um, um, uh, principles uh, that are the same uh, everywhere. Um, but then you cannot talk about ethno-cultural defense, because there is no ethnos being defended here. There is no ethnos element in light culture, uh, ethnos element in the communauté. The communauté, the French one, is simply republican uh, agreement to the three uh, principles uh, of the French Revolution. Uh, liberty, equality, solidarity. Dutch norms and values is not a preference for for, uh, for, for Edamach, is, is Edamach Dutch cheese, or for people in wood uh, clocks, or for no curtains uh, at the windows, right? <laughs> no, Dutch means you're progressive, you, you have no problem if homosexuals kiss, if a woman run bare-bested on beaches, this is, this is a modern understanding of Dutchness. Um, so it's, it's rather liberal and rather uh, progressive. Uh, there's an, another strand of analysis in, in Orgat's uh, book, which I find much more intriguing, because he argues that what is happening is illiberal liberalism. Indeed, that is the true risk of civic integration but it really bites itself with this ethnocultural uh, diagnosis, at least for the European case. I conclude. Fortifying citizenship, cultural defense, the barbed wire is very much perhaps the intention of European states. Indeed, I mostly talk about European states here. But it is not borne out by reality. Renationalization, the barbed wire, is at best symbolic politics. Its target are not even immigrants mostly, one must submit, but uh, natives who are to be uh, tranquilized. Because what this symbolic politics takes attention from is the true novelty on the European continent, which is the fact of recurrent integration, uh, uh, recurrent immigration. That is a new reality for Europeans. When, when I wrote a book, my first book on immigration in 99, it was called uh, Immigration to the Nation State, I argued Europe is different here from North America, and my contrast case was the United States. Um, in America, it's clear somehow immigration is more a recurrent event uh, despite the ups and downs of restrictionism. And now we have just yet one more episode of that. And in Europe, there was this perspective. Yeah, we had guest worker migration. We had post-colonial migration. We have to fairly close that chapter. Fair to the people. We have to honor family unification commitments. but. In principle, no new migration. And that is finished, uh, at least amongst the liberal, social democratic, conservative elite spectrum, excluding, of course, the rebel rousers. Everybody agrees immigration is recurrent. And we have to steer it rationally. They all want to learn from Canada, and they're all these uh, full flights between Berlin and, uh, I don't know, uh, Ottawa, right? Uh, trying to learn from Canada. From Canada learn heißt Siegen learn. To learn from Canada means to uh, learn winning, as the GDR people originally said, right? Um, now, this development has been fast and dramatic. To speak only about Germany, the country I know best in that respect, they are the champions of this old logo 
We are not an immigration country. Wir sind kein Einwanderungsland. Nobody says that anymore. Of course, Frauke Petri and the Alternative for Germany, they trumpet the song, but no serious person talks that talk. Germany actually sports today what I think is the most fully modernized, usually-based citizenship law. There are still problems that not as many people naturalize as one would wish. Germany is still a laggard with respect to naturalization, but the law is completely modern and European standard, as it were. There are now some debates again uh, to uh, tighten rules on uh, dual nationality, but I think this is just uh, after nasty political events, terroristic events, a little bit of a conjunction, and it will pass without uh, restriction uh, uh, happening. And what Germany most importantly has is probably Europe's most advanced uh, uh, and inclusive regime for labor migrants, particularly of the highly skilled uh, migrants. Now, provided that liberal democracy will continue, which is, of course, a big proviso. To the degree that it will remain the dominant spiel in town, the reality of permanent immigration in globalizing economies and in open societies requires a citizenship that is accessible to newcomers, does not demarcate sharply and categorically between the rights of citizens and non-citizens, and one that is framed by thin and elastic identities that can cope with cultural pluralism. Even post-Brexit Britain, and that will be my return um, to uh, Britain, will not change this. She was just meeting Donald Trump uh, last week. And what she said is, and I will never forget that line, as the UK leaves the European Union and is opening up to the world. <laughs> it's interesting to a European. <laughs> that means to be European means not being open to the world. She's serious about it. This is not Trumpism. And Trump, who was just standing next to her, must clearly uh, have not uh, understood that line <laughs> opening up uh, to the world. Uh, and indeed, uh, what in Trump's mind is going on, we don't know. Uh, and that <laughs> needs a much more serious analysis than I could give so far. So that was all I have to say. Is it the end of liberal internationalism? Um, uh, about the UK, I'm confident it is not about America, uh, who knows? And what will be the impact on citizenship law? A lot of time has to pass before you will find something like that. But if indeed populism finishes the second globalization, I think the cards will be mixed completely new. And that is something truly shocking. And I just said to Tom when I met him, uh, you know, when I was told in June 23rd in the morning or 24th, my wife, my wife woke me up and said, they voted for Brexit. What? And then in November 9, my son calls me at 7.30 in the morning. I was in Switzerland and, du, der Trump hat gewonnen. I said, what? It's not possible. I couldn't do anything that day. I was totally just looking at right, internet, news, news from the court of Donald. These things are truly shocking and um, Will it be a game-changing event? Uh, one can only hope not, but uh, there are risky elements in that development. <laughs> All right.